This podcast is made possible by Sage People and U.S. Bank. This is Alejandro Scanapieco, CFO of uh, Globan, a software technology company, and you're listening to CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 443. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. On today's show, we speak to Tim Saunders, CFO of Canopy Growth Corporation, one of the world's largest cannabis companies based in Ottawa, Canada. Tim shares some key insights into the cannabis opportunity, as well as his multi-tiered finance career. We begin after these words from our sponsor. Hello, Jack here. I have a message for you from the folks at Sage People. Decisions about your people should be driven by data. But is your HR department still using spreadsheets to keep track of your people? It's time to move to cloud. Understand what makes your employees tick. Know your best performers or determine absence trends. All with a cloud HR and people system. Sage People empowers organizations to respond quickly and easily to changing priorities in today's shifting world of work. It means you can make sure your workforce is able to adapt while staying connected and engaged wherever they are. Discover how to get instant insights at your fingertips. Visit us today at sageintech.com forward slash sage dash people. things for me and 
probably the first one was leaving public accounting after 10 years and I joined a publicly traded uh, telecom company and I remember my first week on the job, I got the financial report, we said we lost $25 million, uh, I got a letter from the New York Stock Exchange saying we're threatening to delist the company because it's been trading below a dollar for some time. And then somebody went to my office and dropped a letter on it, uh, on the desk from the SEC saying it's been sitting on the CEO's desk for about 10 or 5 days. And I picked it up and there's like 44 comments on it. And I, that was my first week on the job. And in public county, I, I could have walked down the hall and talked to any number of subject matter experts and dealt with it. But when I looked to my left and looked to my right, I realized it was just me. And that's kind of when I realized that I was going to have to grab the reins and, and take control of this thing. And... Um, you know, I have to be honest, you know, dealing with 44 SEC comments is a good way to learn about the company for me at the job. And it, but it was a start of a, a good run um, in, in with that company. Um, you know, really, really transformed. And over the next six years, went from a market cap of $70 million to $4.8 billion. Um, led tremendous change, got exposure to um, uh, all kinds of corporate finance activities, whether it was M&A, including integration of the M&A and doing corporate financings, uh, equity and debt deals. and so it was quite foundational, but like the, it, it started the theme in my career of uh, leading change. And I then sort of pivotal pivot moments too for me. I was uh, later a finance executive with Vodafone in Europe, and I was um, <clears throat> recruited or picked to be the finance lead for a business transformation exercise with leading 22 countries to move to a common way of doing business. One was supply chain, HR, and IT. And I kind of went from a, where I had a you know, staff of 100 to really either, depending how you looked at it, a staff of none or a staff of thousands. But I was in a position where I was going to be making decisions that would change the way that the company would do business for the next number of years. And it was then I realized that I didn't have to be the smartest guy in the room. I had a lot of smart people working for me, and frankly, people that were smarter than me. I uh, had uh, partners from principals from KPMG, some of the best and brightest from Vodafone working for me. But really what I had to do is um, really listen to some really reasoned, uh, thoughtful um, approaches and just make a decision. And that's when I learned how, how powerful that was, uh, just making a decision. You get a lot of smart people, uh, experts, but they're just in the, incapable of making that decision. And what I learned is that people love direction. And um, sometimes there's just uh, some direction is better than no direction, obviously. And so that was quite transformative for me. And the other, the other, uh, other uh, thing that comes to mind and that was helpful uh, to prepare me for the role I'm in today was when I kind of shifted gears from running large public companies to being CFO of a private equity startup with uh, no revenues. And uh, in that time, I was uh, actually I raised about $350 million in revenue uh, in, in the seven years I was there. But there's often times when we were burning $3 million a month and I had $800 in the bank and payroll due in two days and suppliers calling. And, 160 people working for me, and and uh, you, you don't learn anything like, like this in business school or uh, your CPA program, but um, really providing a steady hand to keep people calm, keeping your employees engaged, to keep showing up for work, keeping suppliers showing up to provide services, deliver goods, and keeping investors engaged and to continue to fund the company. Um, that was um, uh, uh, really a challenging time, but uh, it really called on everything I had in terms of being a financial leader to get that company from sort of week to week and month to month and year to year. And um, so that was um, quite foundational, foundational for me and, uh, like you said, uh, readied me for what I was about to walk into with Canopy. 
One of the other interesting parts of your uh, background is I, I have to believe you're Canadian. Your original career roots are run deep in Ottawa. And uh, at, while you did live in Europe for a time, you returned uh, to Canada. That is right. Um, yeah, no, I, I think um, I, I do. Uh, I love the uh, Ottawa lifestyle. You're close to the rivers and lakes and mountains. Um, it's uh, four season cities, which is great. Um, as a in, for, uh, for commerce goes, I'm, uh, I think, and I didn't mention this before, but one of the things that attracted me to is being able to build a, a great uh, international head office here in Ottawa. And uh, so being a good citizen of the city is, uh, is something I'm proud about. Going to, before I'm going to Prague in Europe, that was a great life experience as well. Um, and I always tell people that when you leave your home country, you feel more uh, pride as well where you come from. And it's happy to share that that happens from home too. Meanwhile, does the Canadian regulatory uh, environment make the cannabis opportunity more attractive? Oh, sure. Um, okay, so Canada's done a, a great job in creating a federally regulated system. It originated um, uh, out of the court system where the courts had deemed that uh, access to medical cannabis was a human right. But it really wasn't really well uh, implemented and that it could cause confusion for law enforcement as to who was a good guy and who was a bad guy. So regulations were introduced that were Canada-wide um, to create this concept of a licensed producer that one ensured that the supply that reached the public market was safe and tested, uh, kept, the, kept it out of the black market and also kept it out of the hands of kids. Um, so it, it, I think Canada has been a, a world leader in that and many other countries are adopting a similar framework. Um, uh, so what I would say to you is that it's, it's, um, it's, it's not so liberal in the context of um, as easy and free access. That's not the case at all. It's highly, highly regulated. I couldn't be more regulated, um, uh, whether it's with the banks, the uh, stock exchanges, but also with uh, requirements under Health Canada. Uh, four years ago, there was probably three countries in the world that um, had a framework like this. Today it's about 30 countries, and the more and more how uh, cannabis might be regulated and access provided. Typically in a medical context, Canada is one of the few countries in the world that has just recently allowed a recreational access. But again, it's all tightly controlled, uh, working with uh, the Crown Corporations for distribution and supply. And at the end of the day, what this really is about is, is custody of, of, uh, or the chain of custody, uh, ensuring the product that reaches the market is uh, safe and secure. Tell us about uh, when you stepped into your current role there as finance leader at Canopy Growth Corp. Uh, compared to uh, perhaps earlier uh, CFO tours of duty, did this? Did you have a different challenge? Uh, and and uh, what stage of development was the team, the finance team that you were taking on? <laughs> well, absolutely. Um, so when I considered coming to this company, I, I likened to you know, joining Seagrams in 1931, coming out of Prohibition. And when I looked at my finance work chart, there's basically three names on a paper. There's myself, a controller, and a bookkeeper. And I joke that we put boxes around our names so we can call it an org chart. So it was truly a startup. But at the same time, this company had already gone public, so it was really kind of running before it, and I'd learned a lot. Uh, but the idea of going public at that time was really more about credibility and at a time when credibility was hard to come by. 
that said, I, I knew that this this industry was going to be disruptional, was going to be huge, and uh, was going to quickly transform itself from this sort of startup phase to um, uh, you know mature company that's capable of generating billions of dollars of revenue every year, and and I think we will. Uh, so my immediate challenges was really to build up that capability. So it helped that I had the background of large public companies. Um, knowing where it needed to be. It helped that I worked in a private equity-backed startup when they had no resources and no money because even when I started, there was no certainty that capital would be available to do the things we needed to do. Um, so, and it was also uh, an urgent priority for me then to start building out that team into the traditional swim lanes that you expect in a full finance organization, but at the same time, uh, you know, sort of what I call moving from the B team to the A team in terms of attracting talent. Uh, that they could help execute and, and scale up the company and, uh, and, and sustain that uh, that growth. So that was a huge focus of mine to create that uh, new organization that would match up with the rest of the business as it, as it continued to grow. Uh, so that was probably one of the biggest challenges. Governance was also a big one. Uh, you can imagine a uh, young startup company where, you know, people just kind of made things happen, uh, putting structure in place to ensure that you could be compliant with, you know, the exchange rules, the TSX, and now we're on the New York Stock Exchange and getting ready for SOX. Uh, that what you had to do, though, is putting all the governance in place at the same time, respect the entrepreneurial culture that the company had that was going to um, have the speed uh, execution to do the things we needed to do and be successful. So finding that balance was certainly a challenge, but uh, and also at the same time uh, making it work with the culture uh, that we had created in the company. Those are the media thoughts on my mind. I don't know what the uh, the marketplace really looks like today. Are there other players of similar size to Tanabe Growth that uh, you perceive as your, your your competition today? Or what, what would you share with us about the competitive marketplace? Well, sure. Well, the first starting point is if I had to say who's a competition, I'd have to say it's the black market. So guys with leather jackets and motorcycles. So the black part market is still... Uh, probably the biggest area of competition, but, you know, with regulations that are properly enforced, that should get choked off before long as, you know, customers begin to see that they can secure a product from a, that's a safe and uh, to consume, uh, reasonably priced, and reasonable access to be able to um, get the product. Uh, I think we'll be able to convert that. But, yeah, in our space, there are many other licensed producers um, and some of similar scale and size. I think by a measure, we're, we're the world's biggest. Uh, whether by production capacity, uh, revenue, market cap, uh, cash on the balance sheet for sure. Um, so I, I would say we're probably factor, you know, the, depending on which measurement you're using, but, you know, three to five times uh, the size of uh, most other competitors in that space. Given this company's uh, stage of development, what would be top of mind for you uh, when it comes to metrics and what you're – you know, each morning you're you're taking a close look at what would be uh, what would well, be top of mind. I, I think the main thing, like, it, it's, it, and it's, it's always stuck with me, is cash. Uh, cash is king, and so um, you know we have a, well over five billion cash in the bank today. Um, but what I what I've always been looking at um, from the early days is you know what does our cash burn look like, and how is the cash being deployed? Right? Where does the cash need to be? When and where? All of those things. Um, because we're funding a tremendous amount of growth uh, to, to capital expansion, not only across Canada, but around the world. We're now in 11 countries on uh, five continents and uh, making investments uh, at the same time, 
funding a lot of M&A transactions. So my desk is typically um, uh, full of uh, opportunities that we're looking at and devoting resources to that, uh, not only for me thinking about the deal itself, but also thinking about how the morning after and how we integrate those uh, businesses into what we're doing and how it fits strategically into where we want to go. So all of those things uh, place precious demand on cash. And uh, true, I'm always thinking about how we fund that. Uh, in the time that I've been here in the last three and a half years, I've done 26 M&A transactions and about 13 uh, uh, fine equity and debt deals. Um, and there's more to come, especially, like I said, when you have that much cash in the balance sheet. So um, that's always been the sort of the biggest uh, uh, KPI for me. Um, obviously, we're, you know, look at things like, you know, revenue and market share, and, and which is really kind of reforming that sort of um, Amazon model. Uh, trying to, this is now is the time to uh, grab, you know, to land grab and grabbing market share and holding on to the market share and making sure we're doing the right things to, to maintain it. So those are the things that are top of mind for me. So uh, help me understand, what uh, types of businesses are you acquiring? Well, it's varied. I mean, um, it, it, you know, when we first got started, we the, the, the uh, priority was production capacity and um, also um, filling in uh, uh, market niches, uh, acquiring brands, uh, having brands and intellectual property is probably the most important elements, I think, to be successful in the sector. So that had been the focus early on. <clears throat> We're not looking to buy more licensed producers in Canada. Uh, we have uh, almost 6 million square feet. Um, uh, uh, either in uh, uh, operation today or nearing uh, completion. So we're not looking for any more in that, in that regard. But what we are looking for are uh, uh, sort of complementary technologies, uh, vertical plays, whether it's uh, intellectual property, distribution, those kinds of things. Now, when we look internationally, we will certainly be looking at uh, establishing you know, local production facilities where permitted. Uh, to supply the Europe and Latin America, and so uh, those are kind of the uh, where we think we'll deploy capital in the uh, short order. So, along the way in your career, uh, I'm sure you've experienced a lot of what we refer to as finance strategic moments. And uh, when you consider the span of your career, hmm. um, well, yeah, I think I think it was one that was. Um, I guess, was earlier in my career, <clears throat> maybe about 15 years ago, 16 years ago, um, my company, uh, which is Mitel at the time, it was a combined uh, telecom systems business, but had a semiconductor business. And I remember, you know, we, we always struggled in getting the proper valuation. You know, we, we, were, we always seem to be giving only value at about one-time sales when uh, peers in our space, especially the semiconductor side, were getting, semiconductor side were getting uh, valued at like 12, 12 times sales, 8 to 12 times sales. Uh, that's a big difference. So this kind of set us on the course to think about how do we unlock that value. Um, and that's when we kind of went down the path of uh, splitting the company up in two. You know, people talk about M&A all the time, and, and, and which is very common, but probably the biggest challenge I've ever had was not only getting to the point where we split the company in two, but well, how do you do it? It's, um, you know, you've got a company that's otherwise been tightly integrated, stable, but now you've got to split the company in two and make sure it's stable the morning after so that both companies can operate independently. So <clears throat> I, I think that was probably, strategic, for strategic, that was probably one of the biggest things we did in terms of uh, uh, changing the, the, the business model and um, the nature of the business um, by splitting those up and then the execution of that, which occupied a lot of my time and, and 
So it's foundational in my learning in terms of human behavior. Uh, that, that was probably one of the biggest ones that I can add to that call. CFO Tim Saunders enters the mentoring round with us after these words from our sponsor. Technology adoption, business partnership, strategic direction, resource optimization, and honestly, scalability, right? We are past the point in business of throwing people to solve problems. Like, let's take a five-second pause and RIP to that business strategy, right? <laughs> you can't just throw people to solve problems anymore. Hi, I'm Rowan Tonkin, your host at Being Planful. You just heard from Chris Ortega, a recent guest on the show. If you want to hear from guests like Chris talking about today's trends for tomorrow's FBNA leaders, you can subscribe at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcast. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. We are now going to move quickly to our mentoring round where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to inspire future finance leaders. What's one thing that's exciting you about finance and business today? Well, I've got to say, you know, um, <clears throat> there's no, probably no other business or company around that I think would be as interesting as what we're doing today. We are um, doing something that's never been done before. Um, a lot of the uh, transactions we're entering into are um, quite uh, groundbreaking, I think, in terms of uh, the nature of those transactions and how we're structuring them, uh, how we're fi fi funding them and making that happen. So I think it draws on pretty much all the skill sets. I think you mentioned earlier that uh, I'm not a caretaker type of CFO. And so um, I'm really excited about what we're doing today. Uh, it's transformational. It's disruptive. Um, it, it draws on all your uh, skill sets and really intrinsic things that you can't uh, learn almost anywhere else. And, so when we hire people, we are not, we sure we look at the resume, but uh, it's an expression that Bruce uh, Renton, our CEO, uh, co-CEO, uh, often refers to as a hire for IQ, because there's no playbook for what we're doing. There's no manual. Um, so you have to find people that are talented, smart, and have the energy to, to make this happen and to fight battles every day and do something that's never been done before. And so that, that's what kind of, I, I'm really excited when I get up in the morning about all the things we're going to do. They're, they're, they're tough, they're, it's challenging, it's not for everybody, but my gosh, it's rewarding. <laughs> I was joking, I quite often joke, you know, when I went to parties uh, earlier in my career, nobody ever asked me about semiconductors, but I'll go to a party now. Everybody wants to know about what I'm doing in the Canada space. What, uh, was there any hesitation uh, when you were first introduced to the opportunity? I don't imagine you knew much about the industry. Or am I wrong about that? 
I knew nothing. I knew nothing about cannabis. Uh, I never tried it. Um, you know, when I went for coffee with Bruce about uh, back in 2013, before this all started, before the regulations went into place, and Bruce told me about everything that was happening. He told me that this is really about a business issue, about chain of custody. And that was a business problem he could solve. He himself knew really nothing about cannabis, but he knew business. And um, he told me everything. He's going to get a business, going to get a building, going to get a license, going to go public. And having just come out of the private equity startup world, um, I listened to him and I thought, geez, I've heard this, this pitch before. And I, I didn't believe him. And I said, Bruce, good luck to you. And I actually literally walked away. And, and so I watched from afar as he executed and the dominoes fell just the way he did, or the way he said it was. Um, but a year later, he called me back and said, Tim, I'm looking for another CFO. What, what do you think? And so Bruce, I said, I'm not going to make the mistake twice. I'm in. Um, and then I go back to the analogy I said before. This is really like joining Seagram's at the end of Prohibition in 1931 with alcohol. And I thought, this is going to be a fun ride. Um, I'm going to throw myself into this. I bootstrapped myself along with the other executives and other employees. We were a small team back then. And I thought, this is going to be a lot of fun. I had a supportive wife, of course. I just had to make sure I had enough money to, you know, pay the mortgage and put food on the table. But uh, other than that, I was going to learn a lot. And, and we're not on life just, uh, not in the world, uh, in this world just to exist and do the same thing over and over again. We're, we're, we're meant, to, meant to grow and challenge ourselves. And so this is going to be a fun ride, and, and it has been. So I, made, I took a chance that nobody else would have taken. Um, a lot of people rolled their eyes when I said what I was doing four years ago. Um, but now it's a conversation. Everybody thinks that I was, I was, so, I was brilliant for doing that. And, um, but, uh, you know, there were risks uh, that went with it, and, and not everybody's up for that, but I'm glad I did. I just want to circle back again to uh, what, what I pointed out earlier was that you had uh, pursued opportunities in a variety of industries. In, in part because I think many finance leaders are unable to do that. And I think it comes down to, like, the ecosystem. I mean, e- e- where you network, uh, and that's where the opportunities kind of spring up. So if you, you, your ecosystem spans many uh, I- industries, it's interesting, and it's challenging it on some level. So, again, uh, it seems like the opportunities that you are, are, are kind of far-flung and um, I want you to challenge me and say, well, to be honest, it's not as big an ecosystem as you might expect, given the fact that this was related to that and this is related to that. Or, or what would you tell me? Do you understand what I'm feeling? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, asking it poorly. Uh, no, it's okay. I, I guess my, my view that I've always said is uh, that when you're in finance, you can pretty much work in any industry. Um, you know, if you're a reasonably smart person, you can, you can adapt and learn and, and change. And, and, and I think that in my personality is, is to adapt like that. Um, yeah, certainly I've built relationships over the years and um, maintained connections. And frankly, like Bruce, the reason I had a coffee with Bruce Linton back in 2013 was because we both came from the high-tech and, uh, and clean-tech space. And we had crisscrossed paths. I guess let's say we were acquainted, but we always stayed connected. And so I was engaged in a conversation. Um, no, I, I, don't, I don't believe in the, uh, the idea that you, if you're once you're in an industry um, that you're stuck with that because um, that means you're making a life decision at the age of 23 or 24, and uh, that's just not the way it goes. Uh, so I, I, uh, I, I, for me, I, I don't get it. I, I just think that we, especially in finance, um, if you really talk about business, you talk about people. If you ask me how to really spend my day, probably, I probably spend 70 to 80% of my time just dealing with people. 
and whether it's taking them through change or coaching them or, or solving business problems. So I don't, I don't see that uh, you need to get boxed in. Um, I'm glad I took those risks and made those changes because now it's made for an interesting life. You've been in both some fairly sizable companies as well as uh, startups. Uh, sure. Is there a preference or a realm, or is, does one have greater appeal for you? Well, no, for sure. I, I, I do like the big companies because it means you have resources and you're working with a lot of talent and smart people. Um, the, it's, uh, again, not for the faint of heart when you're in a startup situation. But, uh, no, I think, you know, when I look at it, for me, it was sort of part adding to my tool chest um, and uh, life experience that I think helped prepare me for uh, what I'm doing today and what I've done with my whole career. So I think my inclination is to work for large, uh, large public companies. And so even when I went into Canopy and when it was almost a startup in, in its very beginning, I went into the idea that we're going to grow this into a big, massive, uh, a successful public company. And so I'm, I'm kind of getting to where, um, into my comfort zone. Um, and so more, more to go. The last four years was uh, certainly a, uh, you know, the first phase, I think, of that growth. I think we're now uh, at the beginning of another big phase as the international markets open up. And we have the so-called jet fuel of, you know, $5 billion on our balance sheet that I can go after and help create that market, get the resources I need, build out a company. And um, so, yeah, no, this is, this, is where, this is where I'm happiest. Now we'd like to ask you uh, something uh, personal in nature, uh, and it might be your daily routine or a habit that you've uh, had over the years that in some way you feel has contributed to your professional success. Does anything uh, come to mind when I ask for a, a personal habit that you believe has contributed uh, to your professional uh, success in some way? Well, yeah, and I don't know if anybody's given you this answer before, but um, the, the, the big thing is um, my medicine or the way I'm able to cope with all the stress and, and everything like this is really I get up every morning at about 4.30 and I go to the gym. Um, I, I, I'm not a morning person, but I figured out that nobody's really looking for me to call a meeting at 6 a.m. <laughs> and my family's not counting on me, so if I'm at the gym at 6 a.m., I can get a, a great workout in, an intense workout in, and then I'm, you know, showered and done by a little after 7 and at my desk by 7.15 because the gym's next to the office. So I, that um, gives me all the endorphins I need, gets me charged up, and it gives me the capacity to cope with all the things I need to do. Um, and that's a, a habit I go every day. I go seven days a week. And that's my habit, and um, it keeps me going. So it, it, it sounds uh, simple, but uh, yeah, that's the recipe for me. Okay, our final question. As we look forward, what are your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months? So I mentioned that, you know, we're now kind of in this next phase. In, in a way, it's like a new beginning. Um, it's really uh, continued to transition the finance group to where it needs to be, uh, scaling up and adding the capacity in the group to sustain that kind of growth and match up with the rest of the business. Huge amount of opportunity uh, internationally and um, uh, here in North America as well. Uh, so it's really uh, continuing to build out the talent pool um, and the, all the systems and processes. At the same time, as you expand, uh, say, from our original location just outside of here, Ottawa, but now coast to coast and in Europe and Latin America and Australia, being able to maintain that same kind of culture uh, throughout the company so you don't lose what made it special. So 
um, really uh, continue to build up that group and uh, focus on more disruptive change and then helping people get through uh, that change. So that's my focus. Hey, don't forget, we're always happy to hear from you. Drop me an email at jack at cfothoughtleader.com. As always, thank you for listening.